I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. Uh, before we begin this morning in our uh, preaching, we will pray for Grace Church in Arizona. We also want to pray for Dr. Dolzal and Dr. Barcelos, who are also, I believe, in Arizona. Uh, so, saints, if you would, please join me. We will pray for these churches. Uh, if you don't mind, we would also pray for uh, my church in Bakersfield. And then we will turn to God's holy word. One moment. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and ask for your mercy and for your grace, for your help and for your strength. Help those, Lord, who are gathering at Grace Covenant Church in Arizona. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word there. We pray that you would bless also Pastor John there and, and Dr. Dozal and also Pastor Barcelos, please, Lord, give them grace, give them strength, help and assist them as they proclaim and preach your word to your people. We pray that they would grow, that they would be strengthened, that they, Lord, would be drawn closer and nearer to you. We pray for the saints in Bakersfield as well, for the saints at Reformation Bible Church, that you would bless them through the preaching of your word this morning. Please, Lord, uh, bless Pastor Isaiah as he preaches your word. Help him to declare only all that you have said. Lord, help him and all of the brothers that we have mentioned and all those who are faithfully preaching your, your word this morning. Help them to lean and depend upon you. Help them, Lord, to trust in you with every syllable. We pray, God, that you would guide their thoughts, Lord, and that they would uh, speak forth the things that are uh, reigning true forevermore from your word. We pray that you would also be with us here today, Lord, at Grace Reform, that you would bless our ears, that you would bless our uh, eyes, and Lord, that you would give understanding to our minds and belief to our hearts, obedience to our hands and feet. Uh, bless us today through the preaching of your word. God, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please, saints, would you once more stand for the reading of God's holy inspired word in Psalm 100. Psalm 100, please. <clears throat> Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is God's holy inspired word. May God add a blessing to the preaching and reading of it. Please be seated. Well, dear saints, I bring you uh, warm greetings from Bakersfield, California, and from Reformation Bible Church. It is truly my pleasure, my blessing, 
uh, to be able to worship with you all this morning. I praise God for Pastor Barcelos. I also praise God for the saints here at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. You are all always so kind and welcoming uh, to me each time I'm here. Today, with God's help, we shall seek to answer a question together. The question is, what is worship? Uh, This sermon is the first in a short series that the elders began and have just finished on liturgy. It is helped by the book that is in your your book table, What Happens When We Worship. Uh, That was recommended to us by Dr. Bocellos, and it was, I think, a great blessing for our church. This morning, we will consider the question, what is worship? Uh, The 100th Psalm will be uh, the text that will be the foundation for all that we say this morning. Uh, This morning, I have five points for your consideration. Let us begin. Number one, the question, what is worship? This is verses one through four of Psalm 100. It is important for us to acknowledge that for many of us, when we hear the word worship, all of us often have presuppositions about what it means to worship. Many of us come to the doctrine of worship with certain traditions and also certain preferences. We must, by the help of God the Holy Spirit, Submit all of our presuppositions, submit all of our traditions, and yes, even all of our preferences to God and to his word. In short, and you know this well, God tells us what true worship is. God regulates our worship, and any worship that has not been prescribed by God is not worship. As we seek to answer the question, What is worship then? There are two senses in which we must understand worship. Let's begin with the general sense. Uh, The basic definition of the word worship is a combination of two words, worth or worthy and ship. Worth, as you obviously know, is when we ascribe significant value to something. It is that which is highly appreciated that which is highly thought of, that which is highly or most honorable, it's that that has great value. The second word, ship, is not like the the ship on the sea, but rather it is quality of or condition of. It's the, I'm going to say this word and this phrase a lot, it's the act, the act of ascribing value to someone or something. Again, it's the act or the activity of offering great worth to someone or something. Ship is the quality of offering or ascribing. Combined, worship is this. It is the spiritual act, action of highly appreciating, highly thinking of, highly valuing, and highly honoring, in this case, God. With great honor. The psalmist, inspired by God, calls all of the world, capital, all of the world, all of the earth, to shout joyfully to God and to serve him. To serve as an act of worship. The Lord with gladness, another act in our worship. 
not with bitter servitude, not with reluctant servitude, but with a servitude from the heart of gladness. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Ascribe would be render unto the Lord. Regard the Lord as. Give to the Lord the glory that is due to him and to him alone. Glory is, brothers and sisters, weightiness. In, in reference to God, it's an, it's an infinite value. Not monetarily speaking, but more esteeming, which is the act. Esteeming someone, something as being not only precious, but priceless. Glory is declaring that God is infinitely worthy of being highly valued, highly esteemed, highly honored. And therefore we, as an act, offer worship to God. Ascribe to the Lord, Psalm 96, 7. O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord the glory, to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. The psalmist calls for, again, all people to ascribe, to give God glory. Uh, let, let me be clear. In our worship, we are not adding something to God by giving. We are not giving something to God that he lacks. God does not lack glory. Amen. He does not call us to give him something in order to make up for something that's lacking in him. God is boundlessly glorious. We confess God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. When we give God glory, we are not making up for something lacking in God. Rather, we, with our hearts, passionately, this is an act, and with true declarations, with our mouths, this is an act, reflect back to God the glory which he infinitely and perfectly possesses. We give to God our hearts and devotion and proclaim about him all that is infinitely true. The psalmist declares in Psalm 96, 7, Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him, all the earth say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Worship is an act of giving to God all that is rightly due to him and to him alone. We'll touch upon this as we, we move forward. But often we approach worship as passive receivers rather than actively participating in this holy act of not only receiving, but giving to God. You're not just here to sit back and say, preacher, give to me. You have a responsibility as well. You are to give. Give glory to God. It is your act. It is uh, your ascribing to God all of the glory that is due his name. Sadly, many people will leave churches. Some of them actually good churches. 
because of something like, I'm not getting anything from that church. And they may not be getting anything. But the phrase itself is problematic. I, I am not getting anything. That There is this kind of passive approach to worship that we must be aware of. Even in our churches, when we speak of, I say our, our sister churches, when we speak of the means of grace, you hear that often. We must, not be, we must be careful not to create a culture in which simply the people of God attend to the means of grace, but don't do so actively by faith. That, that I am here and God is supposed to dispense grace to me simply by way of me being here. And not attend to the means of grace by faith. That there is an act on my part to come expecting that God will give me grace as I attend to the means by faith. You are not to be passive receivers of grace. You are to be active receivers who bring faith to the grace that God is providing for you. There is an active participation. In order to receive the benefits of the means of grace, faith is required. There is receiving and there is giving. This is all taking place when we worship. The psalmist said in Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord. It's the call to worship. Uh, serve the Lord. Uh, know, that, know, know that the Lord himself is God. Do you see all the actions there? Shout. Serve. Know. There's a responsibility on your part, is there not? Notice Yahweh, the name of the covenant Lord, is evoked again and again and again in this psalm, and not for no reason. The psalmist is instructing us on the nature of worship. There is, and that is, that there is a, a covenantal nature to worship that truly defines the heart of worship. We can often major just on the elements of worship, making sure that we have all of the elements present for worship, which is important. The call to worship, the invocation, the hearing of the law and the gospel, the singing of song all of these elements, they must be present. But we must not neglect the fact that there is an intimate intensely loving covenantal communion that is taking place between God and his people when we gather for worship. We can sometimes just get caught up in the form which is important and absolutely miss the communion that is taking place between God and his people. Worship is not just, not just ascribing to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship is covenantal communion between God and his people. The psalmist calls all the earth to worship God. We give worship to God because we have first been called into covenantal relationship with God. We've been called by God first. The call to worship is God calling you, not us calling him. 
In my former tradition, we would open up prayer by saying, uh, let's call upon God and ask him to come meet with us. Actually, it's the reverse. God calls us to come and meet with him. Jonathan Cruz, in that book back there, the call to worship is not just a way to begin the service. It's not even a way to reorient our minds to think about God, though it should do that. He says, preeminently, God, through the minister, is calling his people into covenantal relationship, into this, listen to this, a covenantal conversation. There is call from God, we respond. There is law and gospel, we respond, hopefully with repentance. We sing as God tells us that we have been forgiven of sins. We hear God speak to us in his word. He calls us to have fellowship with him at his table. There is this this covenantal conversation and communion taking place between us and God when we worship. It is so intimate. It is vastly more intimate than I ever imagined when I first became a Christian. We are giving to God, but only because God has first given to us. May I say this? Why does this first point, what is worship, why does it matter at all? Young people, why does this question, this first point, what is worship, why does that matter? Why do you need to be hearing this person? I normally preach loud. That's just the way that I am. I'm sorry if you're not used to that. Why is this visitor who's come from across the desert, why is he yelling so much? Older people, why have I spent so long on this first point? And middle-aged people, same question to you. Because of our second point, you were made for worship. Why do you need to know what it means? Because you were made for worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. The psalmist is not calling for rocks, for trees, or even animals per se, to worship God. Rather, the call from God through the psalmist is for all of those who have been uniquely made in his image to come and to offer worship to God. That is you and me. Ascribe to the Lord, the psalmist would say, you families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord, you families. Give to him all of the glory and strength that is due to him. How is the psalmist, inspired by God, how is he able to make this kind of call Ascribe, calling all families, ascribe to the Lord, all of you families, all of you made by God. How is a psalmist, how does he have the audacity to say every single person with breath, person with breath, give God glory? It's not an invitation per se. It is a call and command. psalmist is appealing to the very reason why you exist. 
You and you and you and you. Why do you exist? Why are you here? To worship and glorify God. That is why you live. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question we all know. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for our genesis and our terminus? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's why you live. It's why you breathe. It's why you move. Why have you been created? Why do you exist? It is to glorify God. And not only that, but in your glorifying God, find satisfaction in the fact that you have found the reason why you have been made to glorify him. And in that you find joy. This is for all people of all ages, of all, from all nations, from every, every tribe and tongue. You exist to glorify God and to find satisfaction in him alone. What's the most important thing you will ever do? Think about it. Even you, some, are, some of you younger or some of you older or middle-aged, all of you who are hearing, what is the most important thing you will ever do? Some will say to be married one day. Others to, have, to be married and have children. To graduate from school. To get a secure job. To find a forever home. Some of us to, to finally complete all of the collection of trinkets that we've been working on for all of these years. Even some to have your name in bright lights. The fact is, the most important thing that you will ever do is worship. For a married couple to be married and not worship God together, though they may love one another, is failed marriage. For a person to have children and not, and not, and not at least raise them to fear God. You can't save them, but at least raise them to fear God. It's failed parenting. To achieve earthly success and not worship God in those successes is not success, it's failure. Worship is the most important act that you and I will ever do. No matter what your days, weeks, months, or years call you to, to accomplish, the most important thing you and I will ever do is worship, for it is the very reason why you exist. You've been made in the image of God. Psalm 1 or Genesis 126, there is an overemphasis, you've heard it, in, the, uh, in order to accentuate the high privilege that human beings have in being made in God's image. Psalm, uh, Genesis 126, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them over and over again. There is an intentional redundancy in the explanation of the manner in which you and I have been made in God's image. We have been internally designed to worship and give worship to our creator. We have been designed to yearn for, to desire, 
to worship God and to ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. God has made us rational creatures with a rational soul. We're not like four-footed animals. We're not like winged beings. Praise be to God. We are the apex of God's creation. God placed in the soul of man a longing to know him and also an ability to know him. To have fellowship with him. John Calvin has said, there is within every human mind and indeed by natural instinct, listen to this phrase, an awareness of divinity. This we take beyond controversy to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance. God himself has implanted in all of men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Calvin will go on to say that there is no region No city, no household that does not have a sense of deity inscribed in all of our hearts. Theologians would call this the the sensus divinitas. The sensus divinitas, which is simply this, the sense of the divine. Within all of us, there is an innate understanding that that there is a God who exists and whom we have been created to worship. The Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans 1. First, that all men know that they have been created to worship, even though this knowledge is suppressed by sin. And in Romans 2, even those who do not have a knowledge of the written law live according to the law that has been written on their hearts. So then when an unbeliever says something like, I just sense that there is something greater out there. It's not cliche. It sounds cliche, but it's not cliche. They are evidencing the the sensus divinitas, the sense of the divine that they have been made with, that you have been made with. When man was created, he resided in the garden temple, which you are very familiar with. He enjoyed the unique perpetual presence of God. His days were filled and fulfilled with worship. His satisfaction was completely in his creator. One theologian says, every neurological reception was stuffed with divine majesty. That even the beauty of Eden could not compare to the beauty of the divine. Man lived in perfect harmony with his creator and enjoyed the very purpose for which he had been made, to worship God and to enjoy him forever. It's why you live once more. And if you are living contrary to this purpose, then your life will be unfulfilled. Your life will be lived constantly seeking satisfaction, but never finding it because satisfaction can be found in no one and nothing else but Christ. If you pour out your life into anything other than Christ, and you will find yourself constantly empty pouring water in broken vessels that cannot hold water. You've been made to worship God. But the reason why we go pour our lives into things that can't hold or sustain life or give us life back is because of sin. We have broken covenant communion with God. Therefore, our knowledge and satisfaction is found in things other than God. 
but our satisfaction is never complete because we were not made to worship or, or serve things other than God. Which leads me to my third point. Man has broken covenant communion with God. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you know the first four commandments of God's word, don't you? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What are all these commands? Well, they are the commands that have been written on your and my heart. They are those commands that you and I both know by way of being made in the image of God. But they are also, they are an, an indictment against man's propensity to misplaced worship. They are the sinful acts of false worship from a fallen people. When Satan tempted Eve and when Eve tempted Adam, the root of their rebellion was a deviation from true worship into idolatry. And the idol of their worship was not this fruit. It was what they believed this fruit would produce for them. Therefore, the idol that they gave worship to was themselves. Man's disobedience is found in a corrupted heart that seeks to deviate from the purpose of their existence, from worshiping God alone to worshiping ourselves. To put greater value on ourselves, to put greater weight and honor on ourselves rather than on God. The first four commandments of God are a rebuke against man's rebellion, against the creative purposes for which God has made us. Man has put other gods before the one true God. Man has offered worship to things, created things, rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Man has taken God's name in vain by not highly esteeming God, by not ascribing to God the glory that is due his name. Man has seen no value in this day, the Sabbath. They've only viewed it now as their day and not the Lord's day. Philosopher James Smith argues, we order our lives around what we want. And whatever we want is what we worship. Whatever we want is what we worship. Friends, brothers and sisters, even if you be present for worship as you are now, but there is something outside of this holy gathering of worship that you can't wait to get back to. It is that thing that you can't wait to get back to that you really worship. And it is a heart posture. It's a matter of the heart. If while we are in the midst of worship, while we are in the presence of God, if while we are ascribing to God the glory that is due his name, 
the worship that we have been created to give, the worship that we should long to give. And if our hearts are divided, if there's something in our phones that that we just got to keep checking, we'll get to this in our second service. If while the preacher is preaching, you find that your time to now do your own personal Bible study, just so that you can tune him out. Whatever is causing your heart to be absent from what is happening right now during this covenantal conversation that God is having with you, whatever is causing the conflict is actually what you worship. Oh God, help us all. The Lord makes it clear there are no gods before him and no gods after him. He knows not a one. The idols, God says, are dumb. They have no life within them. They do not exist. And yet, though they have no life within them, we often give our lives to them, hoping to expect life back, but they give us nothing in return. We hope that they will give us life. We hope that they will give us satisfaction and joy and even completeness, but the only thing that we get back is emptiness because they are wells, broken cisterns that don't hold water. Sin has done this. The corruption of our hearts have done this. Athanasius would say, evil is non-being. The negotiation and antithesis of good, meaning this, It's not found in the thing that you're chasing. It's not the substance that that has the sin within it. It's our hearts that have the sin within it. It, Sin is non-being. It's within us. Sin negotiates with the commands of God, which is sin. Sin is the absence of good, and we will reason that evil is actually good. Paul will say, In Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. It's pushing it back. It's pushing it down. And why do we do that? Because of our unrighteousness, Paul would say. And what is this, this suppressing of? Even though they knew God, Paul would say, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him which is the reason why they exist, if I could insert that part. But they became futile in their minds, in their speculations. Their hearts were darkened. What have we suppressed? How have we become darkened? What is the expression of our darkened hearts? It's this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. What is the expression of our darkened hearts? It's a foolish exchange of worship. It's misplaced worship. It's the evidence of our darkened hearts. When we see our kids not want to go and gather for worship, but rather do something else, they are expressing their darkened hearts. Parents call them to Christ. Call them to see the infinite value that is found in Christ and it's greater than any other thing. It's going from offering true worship to God, the only one worthy of worship, to offering worship to the creator who is unworthy of worship. 
man views himself as the center of, of the universe, as the one who deserves to find satisfaction whenever, wherever, and however he sees fit. Whatever is most important in our lives, you can point to that thing as the thing that you really worship. Uh, let me be careful how I say this. Should you not love your, your family? Yes, you should love them. Should you not love your kids? Yes, you should love them. You, I think you, you, you understand the point. Do you offer a worship to them? We obviously know. The, the fall of man is the declaration that goes something like this. Whatever I want is most important because I am most important. It's the violation of the first four commands. Luther would say, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. The world turns creaturely things into gods. And chief among those creatures is self. Now, We've broken covenant communion with God. Can this be remedied? Can this broken covenant be repaired? Well, we all know the answer to that is yes. Number four, the father is seeking worshipers. The father is seeking worshipers. This comes from, I think Pastor Marcellus taught this in 2021. Psalm 103, Psalm 100 verse 3. We are the people, his people, and the sheep of his pasture <clears throat> enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The covenant of works being broken by sin has left man without the ability, without the desire, and even without the true knowledge of coming to God, without the divine first coming to him. Or to say another way, without divine initiation from God, we would be lost. Our Lord has this wonderful encounter with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You can turn there if you'd like. In John chapter 4. And it is there where our Lord answers this question of, can this be repaired? John 4, 23. An hour is coming, he says to the woman, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people, listen to this, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Dear ones, at the present hour, the Father is actively seeking worshipers. And if the Father is seeking worshipers, the Son is seeking worshipers, and if the Son is seeking worshipers, the Spirit is seeking worshipers, it is a triune act or it is an act of the triune God. For what reason? To restore an image that was lost and a purpose for which that image has been made worship. One must be converted to offer true worship to God. That's first and foremost. Without conversion, there can be no true worship. The Spirit blows where he wills and takes the heart of stone and gives those who are his a heart of flesh. We know this. But this statement by our Lord, the Father is seeking 
worshipers. It is unparalleled, meaning this. There's nothing like it nowhere in all of Scripture. Nowhere in all of Scripture do we read that God is seeking anything. And the one time that we are told that God is seeking anything, it is connected to worship. This gives us a sense of the delight that God takes in worship. And here, our Lord has a conversation with an unconverted woman about worship. Now, worship may not have been at the forefront of her mind. She may have been trying to to distract uh, the author of life. She may have tried to distract his holy gaze from her uh, unholy living. But God was providentially working, seeking worshipers. She had no idea that this statement, the Father is seeking worshipers, actually applied to her. That that she was one of the ones that God was was in pursuit of. She asked the question, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people, the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The question is this, where is proper worship? She understands that, that God, God cares about worship, that, that God cares about right worship, and she has a question about it. She has a, a sense of the divine. The Samaritans as far, which she was, as far as we know, their worship was an enthusiastic worship. But it was devoid of truth. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. These Samaritans rejected a great part of the Old Testament. They instituted their own scriptures, their own priesthood, and devised a worship that was pleasing to them. It, is, it was will worship. Worship that is devised by the will of man and not by the will of God. Their worship was what all of the unconverted offer. It is a worship full of zeal, empty of truth. It is a worship that is passionate, but devoid of right doctrine. Do you know that often people care more about, when they come to to a worship service, they care more about how they feel when they left rather than if what they are doing is true and right according to what God has willed. Many of us, at least for myself, we would gauge the, the quality of a service based upon how we felt when we left. Feel good. What about you? Slap somebody next to you. Uh, Turn around to your neighbor. All of these things were um, evidences that we were having a good time. And we say, oh, not, not that kind of worship. But our Lord makes the point that the opposite is also not true worship. He says, uh, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yes, to the Jews, God has revealed the gospel in seed form. Uh, to the Jews, 
they were sent the prophets, the law, the holy scriptures. Uh, from the Jews came the Messiah, Christ. They were a privileged people. But our Lord makes a distinction between what Israel was also doing and what God actually desires for his people. And it, the, the way that we know this is by the, the first word that Christ says, but an hour is coming. Meaning, what you Samaritans offer is not what God has designed, and what we the Jews have been practicing is also not exactly what God has devi- uh, des- designed, but there is an hour coming. And this is what he does. When true worshipers will worship the Father, here's what he does, in spirit and in truth. What was the mark of the worship of the Jews? It was worship without zeal or spirit. It was holding to the letter, but merely in in form, not devotion. Our Lord would say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, They are, he would say, whitewashed tombs, uh, beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. Orthodox in form, but absent of faith, hope, and love. Lips that are divorced from heart. What offends our Lord? Hypocritical worship. One who is pretentious. One who comes and presents himself as truly being devotional, but it's just an act. It's just form. No real devotion. You know you're offended when someone claims to be something that they are not. When they try to keep up the charade. You disdain their very presence when they are near because you know they are not who they say they are. This is why our Lord would say he had enough with the burnt offerings and enough with the sacrifices. He wants a broken and contrite One that is repentant. Saints of God, what are the errors and pitfalls of worship? Zeal without knowledge and knowledge without zeal. The truth without the spirit and the spirit divorced from the truth. True acceptable worship, it's rational. It engages your minds. It engages and involves your heart. Worship is a conscious activity. It's a holy act that we offer to God that requires, as the minister is speaking, for you to listen, engage your mind, and reason. It's not a passive act. I don't get to go into your mind Bring my mind into yours and, and, and stick it in there. You have to reason with me. We've got to work through this thing together. And that is an act of worship. Because, as we'll get to in our second service, these are not just the words of a man. If you believe what Pastor Barcelos preached over a year ago, then these are the very words of God. And if it were the very words of God, then our antennas would be way up, not way down. Not slouched, not even sleeping. You know what what an unconscious activity is? It's something that 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 you do that requires no thought. 
you just, it's something that happens naturally. You just do it. You don't even need to put an effort into it. It, It's just something that happens without you even thinking about it. The most immediate, immediate example of this is what you're doing right now, breathing. Most of you, if you are wise, you are breathing. But it's only now that you've been made aware of the fact that you are breathing. You are now being made aware of how you're breathing, how loud you're breathing, how quiet you're breathing. Now, all of a sudden, someone's brought attention to the way that you're breathing. You may even be thinking about, yes, I've been thinking about the person who sits behind me, how they are breathing. It's an un, such an unconscious activity. It takes place while you are unconscious. We must not take that kind of unconscious approach to worship. Something that we are not even thinking about. Something that that requires no thought from us as we are going through our liturgy. As we are then going through to the, even to the final benediction, which I encourage you, if, if I'm sure you guys have done the benediction in your service, go to our website if you haven't yet, hear the sermon on the benediction, the grace and the peace that is offered to you, even in the benediction. You and I who did not have grace and who are not worthy of it, you and I who had no peace, the final benediction is not from man, it's from God saying, grace is yours, peace is yours, go in Christ's name. Even that is not an unconscious thing that you should say, now comes the benediction. It is God declaring to you, grace is yours, peace is yours. No part of our worship should just be something that we go through because of mere form. Every single moment is intentional from God. We must not approach worship as a time for us to disconnect. We would be committing the error of the Jews. Truth is being expounded. But if I lack zeal, then I should not expect to leave this place any different than when I entered. The also is true. The the opposite is also true. If I come in with zeal, but have not heard and retained truth, then I should not also expect to be any different That was a great service, Pastor Barcelos. What did I preach about? I don't know, but it was good. Truth engages minds, which then seeps down to the heart, which causes hearts to well up with love for God. The Father is seeking such worshipers. Our minds are to engage with God. And this is a conscious activity. Whatever you need to do, bring an energy drink, bring some coffee, uh, take a cold shower in the morning. Whatever you need to do to make sure that you are conscious when the word of God goes forth, do it. It is not the man. It is God speaking to you, his people, in this covenantal conversation. God has made us rational creatures. We therefore engage our mind. And can I say this? Pastor Marcelo says, don't scold my people. We should not wait for that point or moment in the sermon where we go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's new to me. 
if we're only waiting for those moments in the sermon to find things we, we had never known before, then we're committing the error of Jerusalem worship. If we only come and say, move me, move me, make me cry, then we commit the error and the sin of the Samaritans. The man of God has been called to stand before the people of God and to be faithful to God's word. Not to spend a week or even two weeks trying to find something you've never heard before. I pray that when you hear us preach, you have heard it before. That you have heard it before. You've heard it again and again and again. That you've heard it from the prophets, the apostles, the apostolic fathers, the apologists, the patricists, the patristics, the medievals, the reformers, the puritans, the particular baptists. And most importantly, that you've heard everything that we say from Christ. You've heard it before. And I need to hear it again. You know the gospel. I want to hear it again. You know the law. I want to hear it again. I want to hear again. Is Christ still on the throne? Yes, he is. Is Christ still the only way to be saved? I want to hear it again. Is the blood of Christ still able to save and to cleanse me from all of my sin? Tell me again, preacher. Is it still true? Tell me again. I've heard it before. Say it again. I've heard it before. Say it again. Say it until there is no more breath left in my body. And the next breath that I take is before the one who was slain, standing before the throne, the Lamb of God. Say it again. It's okay that you've heard these things again and again and again. It's a blessing that you hear them again and again and again. Pastor Barcelo says, worship is predictable. You should know the word of God will be preached. It should not be unpredictable. It's a blessing when it's predictable. It's a blessing when we know I will meet with God. We preach what is ancient. Not what's new, not what's cutting edge. And we engage our hearts and our minds. We offer them to our triune God who is forever blessed and forever worthy of worship. Let me finish with this. It'll be the shortest point. Worship is determinus or telos for all of God's people. This is verses 4 and 5. For the Lord is good. When we worship, we are in the presence of God. Hebrews 10 also tells us this. Uh, enter, yes, into the most holy place. Uh, when, when I was uh, in my former tradition, we used to sing the song, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. And then it would go, I would say this is the day. Yeah. But have you considered, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise do you know where you are right now? We are in Palmdale. God has declared from his word that you are in Zion. That when you gather for worship, when you gather for worship and worship according to the manner in which Christ has prescribed for his people, that we are not here, we are there. That we are in the presence of God. That we are among saints from all time, and we are joining our voices with the voices of, of them, and we are hearing Christ speak to us from heaven. Hebrews says we are in Zion. Where is Zion? Not here. We are in the most holy place now. We have been allowed entrance into his, his gates. Oh, and that we would come with thanksgiving in our hearts. It is the the reason why you and I exist. We ascend. And there should be that in worship. There should be this constant ascent. 
when we gather for worship. This should be this until finally we come to the table. And there is that final amen and blessing as we go. We, we, we should be able to say with Jacob, surely the Lord was in this place. We enter his gates because he's rescued us from sin. With thanksgiving in our hearts, he says, we are the sheep of his pasture. We who were no, no sheep, we who wandered have been rescued by him and brought into his presence. And now he leads us. His loving kindness and faithfulness to all generations. I've got so much to say and I'm going to I'm going to bring it to a close. But our public gathering should be a rehearsal. A dress rehearsal for the eternal state. For what is eternally ours in glory. When God meets with his people for worship. There should, there should be a heavenly quality to our worship. Not an experience. Experience is for Disneyland. Talking about true fellowship and communion with God. I pray this is the case for you. No matter who stands behind this this pulpit to preach, as long as they faithfully preach God's word, and as long as we are brought into the worship of God in the manner that God has prescribed for his people, then we have met with him. Your friends may ask you, and family may ask you, you go to GRBC, what do you guys do? You try to think of something enticing for them to want to come. Here's the most enticing thing you could ever say to them. At GRBC, when we gather for worship, we meet with God and have fellowship and communion with him. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you be honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Thank you that you have welcomed us into your presence. Thank you that you have ministered to us today by your word. Lord, let all that has been said this morning cause us to see our attending to worship in a more covenantal manner. Help us to see that it is you who have called us and we not ourselves. And that when we gather, we are to engage our minds and our hearts for it is our act of ascribing to you the glory that is due your name. That when we sing, we are not just by form singing but we are making melody from our hearts that, that pours forth out of our lips. Oh, dear God, help us to see the great grace that has been shown to us in the offering of your Son, who has assumed our flesh that we might be healed. We thank you, our Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.